through 34. Hear the word of the Lord. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the other kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Sagub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning. What a day to pull the short straw of scripture reading today, huh? Ah, uh, that, that could be problematic. All right, are we on there? There we go, I got it. Hey, I hope it's okay that I brought my coffee with me. It's just that uh, I find the times that God speaks to me most powerfully, I'm always holding a cup of coffee. So, uh, hope you don't mind, don't take offense. Um, hey, it's a, it's a privilege to be with you this morning. My name is Dave Huber. I've not met most of you, um, but I've known you for some time, uh, whether you realize it or not. I'll explain. Uh, I have the privilege of working with an organization called Made to Flourish, which is a partner organization of Christ Community Church. You may have heard of it at some point. We talk about it a lot around here. Um, Essentially, Made to Flourish is a network of pastors seeking to bridge the gap in our churches between our Sunday faith and our Monday work, and how do we do that? And I have the privilege of working with an incredible team in, in that initiative. Um, but that's not really why I'm here this morning. Uh, I'm here for a couple of reasons. Uh, for one, I'm here uh, simply because I love to do this. Um, I've had the privilege of serving as a pastor for the last 12 years or so prior to this new role and uh, love the opportunity to teach and explain the relevancy and significance of God's word in our lives. And so thank you for the privilege of getting to do this with you all. Um, beyond that, I'm here because I love my, my dear friend Gabe Coyle and uh, the chance to step in and uh, fill this small gap while he's off on sabbatical uh, is a privilege to get to do that. Um, you, you know him in his role as campus pastor here. You may not know that he also works with me in Made to Flourish as one of our city directors here for the Kansas City Pastors Network. Uh, So I know Gabe well, he's a dear friend, and it's a privilege to support him in this way. Um, But even beyond that, I'm here this morning because of my love for Christ Community Church, and uh, by extension, therefore, uh, my love for all of you. And that's what I mean when I say that I know you even though that you don't know me. Uh, It was 10 years ago that I first came to Kansas City as a young, naive, wet-behind-the-ears seminary student and participated in the pastoral residency program here. Uh, I was in the second class of residence, which simply means that they had absolutely no standards for their selection process at that point. Uh, It's miraculous that I got in. Uh, Not like it is now, as you know from uh, Tyler. Um, But uh, I can say without hesitation that Christ Community Church, the two years that I spent here, 
in the residency program changed my life. Uh, without any exaggeration whatsoever, it changed my life in real and tangible and practical ways. Uh, and so I am deeply indebted to this church and to you all for your participation in this program and your love and commitment and support for the residents. As a former resident, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, before we dive into our text this morning, um, as is always the case, but even more so when we come to the difficult texts of the scripture, I think it's really important that we start with a word of prayer. So would you join me? God, we confess our weakness and our frailty. We confess that we are often so hard-hearted and so ignorant. And so we come this morning asking you to speak to us because you are the one who holds the words of life. And so, Lord God, as we open your word, speak powerfully. Move in our hearts and lives. May your spirit have its way with us. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of each one of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O God, for you are our rock and our redeemer, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning we're starting a new series here at Christ Community, a series that in many ways is going to build on the one that we just finished. Over the last eight weeks, we've been looking at a series of the historic vices and virtues of the Christian faith. And in a lot of ways, now for the next eight weeks, we're going to be seeing a graphic illustration of many of those vices and virtues played out in the lives of two particular people. But this series is far more than just a cute illustration of virtue and vice. Now, this, this story raises some of the most foundational questions that I think we all wrestle with from time to time. As God's people called to live out the virtues of the kingdom, how do we do that in a world characterized by so much vice? How are God's people to respond to the brokenness of the world around us? Do, do, we just, do we just go with the flow, give up and give in? Do we fight for the last vestiges of power, for some, some sense of control? Do we just wash our hands in apathy, run for the hills, take shelter, hide away? As the redeemed people of God, how should we think about and respond to the sin and the evil all around us, and yes, even within us. What are we to do? And that basic foundational question is really the question at the heart of the entire biblical story. See, uh, contrary to popular opinion, the Bible is not just a, a series of disconnected stories. It's one great story. One story told from Genesis to Revelation it's the story of a good God and his good creation. It's the story of the intrusion of evil into God's world, the sin and rebellion of mankind, and the death and destruction and despair that follows. And at its core, the Bible is a story that answers the basic question, now what? Now what? How do we make sense of the mess in which we live? How should we think about and respond to our broken world? 
And the Bible seeks to answer this question over and over and over again. So in the book of Genesis, God answers that question through one family, the family of Abraham, who was chosen by God to be the beginning of a new kind of humanity, a stark contrast to the sin and corruption all around them. In the book of Exodus, God answered that question through the deliverer, Moses, who led God's people out of their slavery from Egypt and into a new covenant relationship with him. God answered that question through Joshua, who would bring God's people into the land that he had promised them, driving out the Canaanites as the walls of Jericho came crumbling down, right? God answered that question through a man by the name of David. Now the people once in the land are led by their great king who would lead them into a deeper trust and relationship with their covenant God, Yahweh. And at this point in the story, everything seems to be going so well. God's people are in the land. They're flourishing under the leadership of King David. They've been established as a community that stands out from the world around them. And they live in grateful response to their covenant God by living out the virtues of his kingdom. This was God's answer to a world full of evil. His answer was us. Isn't that remarkable? But this is where the story takes a drastic turn for the worse. And this is where we come to our text for today in 1 Kings. Now, in order to understand the book of Kings and how it fits into all of this that we've just talked about, I'd love for us to watch a brief video. Um, We've snipped this down a little bit just for the sake of time. It's from an initiative called The Bible Project. It's a great video, and we're going to post the entirety of it on our Facebook page uh, later on this week. But for the sake of our time together, I'd love for you to watch the screen and uh, check out this video. Although they're two separate books in our Bibles, they were originally written as one book telling a unified story that continues on from Samuel that came before it. So David has unified the tribes of Israel into a kingdom, and God promised that from his line would come a messianic king who would establish God's kingdom over the nations and fulfill the promises made to Abraham. So the book of Kings tells the story of the long line of kings that came after David, and none of them lived up to that promise. In fact, they run the nation of Israel right into the ground. The book is designed to have five main movements. The story begins and ends focused on Jerusalem, first with Solomon's reign and the construction of the temple, and then in this last section ending with Jerusalem's destruction and Israel's exile to Babylon. And the story leading up to this tragedy is what makes up the center three sections, which explain how Israel split into two rival kingdoms, how God tried to prevent the corruption of Israel by sending the prophets, and how exile became the unavoidable consequence of Israel's sin. From this point on, the story goes back and forth from north to south, tracing the fate of both kingdoms. Each one had about 20 successive kings, and as the author introduces each king, he evaluates their reign by a few criteria. 
Did they worship the God of Israel alone, or did they promote the worship of other gods? Did they deal with idolatry among the people? And did they remain faithful to the covenant like David, or do they become corrupt and unjust? And according to these criteria, the author finds no good kings in northern Israel, zero for 20. And then in southern Judah, only eight out of 20 get a positive rating, which connects to another huge purpose in this book. And that's to introduce the role of the prophets, key figures in Israel's history. So in the Bible, prophets were not fortune tellers. Rather, they spoke on behalf of the God of Israel, and they played the role of covenant watchdogs, which means they called out idolatry and injustice among the kings and the people. They were constantly reminding Israel of their calling to be a light to the nations, that they should obey the commands of the Torah, and so the prophets challenged Israel to repent and follow their God. In these center sections for each king, God then raises up prophets to hold them accountable. And the most prominent prophets are the northern ones, Elijah and his disciple Elisha, right here in the center of the book. Elijah was a wild man of a prophet living out in the desert, and his arch nemesis was the northern king Ahab and his Canaanite wife Jezebel. You got it? So that brings us right up to our story for today in 1 Kings chapter 16, as we're going to begin meeting this cast of characters that were just introduced, and we start with the bad guys, 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years, and Ahab the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Now, in case there is any confusion here, this is not a good thing, right? I mean, this is not an award you really want to win. Out of the 20 kings that have gone before, all of whom who got the big thumbs down, right? Ahab is the worst. And the idea in the text is not just that he was the worst, but he was worse than every king in total, right? I mean, this guy, this was a bad dude, right? I mean, what was so bad about Ahab? Well, we're going to learn a lot more about this guy as we go throughout the rest of our series for the next eight weeks. But in these summary verses here, we get kind of a few highlights, or I guess uh, a few lowlights uh, of Ahab's curriculum vitae here. Uh, first, it tells us that he marries Jezebel. And Jezebel is the daughter of a Canaanite king. Now, this was a very politically savvy move. These kinds of political alliances were very common in this day. The problem is, this was in direct violation of God's commands to the kings in Deuteronomy chapter 17. Already, Ahab is out of line here. See, God knows how this tends to happen. He knows that once we've married someone, we tend to become like them, for better or for worse, right? And this plays itself out for worse in this case of Jezebel and Ahab. See, Jezebel was a Canaanite, and it's not, it doesn't have anything to do with her ethnic heritage. It has everything to do with her religious identity. Canaanites didn't believe that there was one true God. Rather, they believed in a collection of gods, and each god had a different kind of specialization, if you were. And depending on where you were in the Canaanite region, a different god with a different specialization took center stage. 
And so for the agricultural society that Israel was bathed in, Baal was their chief god. Now Baal was the god of fertility. He was the rain god, the storm god, the one who brought the crops. And you can understand in the agricultural society of Israel and in such an arid climate that it was in, you can understand the appeal of having something like Baal in your back pocket, right? I mean, just in case this whole Yahweh thing doesn't play out, let's just make sure that all of our bases are covered, right? But God had made it clear that the people were to worship no other gods than him. In fact, this is commandment number one in the top 10 rules of the covenant, right? That whole no other gods before me thing, that wasn't just a suggestion. That was the big number one on the list of the rules. And here we have Ahab already flatly disobeying. But it's not just that Ahab disobeyed that makes this moment so heinous. Though let's be clear, that is enough. Disobedience to God is never justifiable. But rather it's the fact that in this one act of sin, it opened the door for countless others. It's always true with any form of idolatry. It's a gateway into a different kind of life into a series of decisions that fall outside of God's design. See, Baal worship was a grotesque thing. And I apologize here for uh, some of the descriptions that are about to happen. I promise I'll be tactful. But you need to understand what's really going on in this moment. Remember, Baal was a fertility god, right? And therefore, worship of a fertility god requires a kind of act in kind. Do you understand? (laughs) See, he was the God who sent the rain, and the rain is what fertilized the crops, and the worshipers thought that the rain from the sky was, can I say, the seed of Baal. Do, Do you catch my drift? Do you understand what's happening here? And so for the people to worship Baal and get what they wanted out of him, it required them to act in such a way to excite the gods. Do you see? Which led to not just bowing down before a stone statue. That's often what we think of when we think of idol worship. And they did that, by the way. But far beyond that, this meant gathering in the temple, being intimate with other people in public, paying for services in exchange for the hope of the rain to fall from the sky. Do you understand what's happening here? Do you catch my drift? This is the kind of corruption that has crept its way not only into the world, but into the very center of the people of God. And when all of this kind of worship didn't work, their most drastic and desperate form of worship was also the most disgusting and despicable. They would sacrifice their children. As if to say to Baal, the great fertility god, this much, O Baal, do I trust you. (laughs) That's why we have this bizarre story in verse 34. This man by the name of Chael rebuilds the city of Jericho, an act specifically forbidden in Joshua chapter 6. Listen to this, Joshua 6, 26. 
Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn, he shall lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest, shall he set up its gates. And that's exactly, almost word for word, what's described in 1 Kings 16, verse 34, right? This guy by the name of Hiel comes along, rebuilds the city of Jericho, and it says it cost him two of his sons. What it's probably referring to here is the idea of foundation sacrifice. We have archaeological evidence for this, that when building a city in the hopes of eliciting the favor of the gods, you might bury your children alive in the foundation in the hopes that the gods would be pleased. Do you understand how heinous this is and how absurd that the people of God would resort to these measures? By the way, the irony here would have hit the ancient reader right in the gut. (laughs) In Joshua 6, God had led his people into the promised land had brought down the walls of Jericho and had driven out the Canaanite people and given the land to the Israelites. And now in this moment, in 1 Kings 16.34, Jericho has been rebuilt. Baal worship has been reinstituted. It's almost as though the Canaanites are right back where they started. Only this time, it's not the Canaanites. It's the people of God. (laughs) It's like the story has come full circle. We've lost all the ground that God had gained. There's there's an obvious point to be made of all of this, but it's one that we can't just take for granted. It needs to be said outright. Evil runs rampant in God's good world. And as true as it was all the way back in Ahab's day, it is just as true today. Evil is pervasive. I mean, just just follow along in the news feed that is constantly at our fingertips for one day, and you'll see it all over the place, right? You'll feel it deep in your soul. Something is horribly wrong here. Things are not the way they're supposed to be, and we know it. But the most frightening evil in the world is not the stuff that happens out there. That's the stuff we all see and easily know and label as evil. That's not the danger. The danger is the evil that happens in here. (laughs) Or even worse, the danger that happens in here, right? See, the fact of the matter is that this story is not about evil in the far reaches of the world. It's a story of sin and evil among God's own people. It's right here in our own backyards. Or to use a more biblical concept, it's right here in our own hearts. I mean, don't, don't fool yourself into thinking that we're much different than Ahab. We are not. We, we tend to hear this description of Baal worship and, and we think, oh man, that is so horrible. I would never do anything like that, Right? And yet, idolatry is just as alive and well today as it was back then. I mean, how many families have been sacrificed on the altar of success and career achievement? Do you see? See, every culture has a host of idols that call for our allegiance. And it's so easy to just slip one of those into our back pockets just to make sure we have our bases covered, right? Power. Success, 
security, influence, wealth, status, achievement, beauty, intellect. I mean, they all invite us to put our ultimate hope and trust in them rather than in God. But remember, idolatry is never just an isolated sin. It's never just one bad thing that we do. It's a gateway. It's a way of life. It leads us into a kind of slavery that will strangle our souls in the same way it did King Ahab's. There is rampant evil in God's good world. And the gravitational pull of our hearts will always be back to the ground of our cultural idols. I think if we're honest, we all know that we have a little bit of Ahab in us, don't we? Seems pretty bleak at this point in the story, and and it is, no doubt. But it's not without hope. And it's at this moment where we meet the second character of the story, a prophet by the name of Elijah. Look at chapter 17, verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years, except by my word. I love this guy. (laughs) I mean, it's really interesting that there's no introduction here, right? We don't get any background information about Elijah other than where he's from. We get no resume, no credentials. He just walks into the courtroom of the most powerful and most wicked man in the land and punches him in the face, right? I mean, not really, but (laughs) kind of. Why would Elijah do this? What is going on in Elijah's mind that would prompt him to have this conversation with Ahab? Well, the text doesn't tell us. We're given no explicit detail here. But I think we can draw some conclusions from what it says around this. First, I think Elijah understands that God is angry against the sin and evil in this world. It tells us back in verse 33 that Ahab's actions provoked the anger of the Lord. Now, God's anger often gets a bad rap, right? We often think of this God as some old crotchety man sitting up in heaven with lightning bolts in his hands just waiting for someone to step out of line, right? But that's not the picture being portrayed in this moment. If there is ever anything worthy of anger, this is it, right? I mean, evil has destroyed the good world that God has created. I mean, just imagine for a, for a moment if someone intentionally, willfully assaulted your child. Would you not burn with anger at the injustice, the inhumanity, the evil that's perpetrated in that act? And that's exactly what's happening here. In the same way, God looks at the sin and evil that has destroyed his good world, and he is furious. And thank God that he is, right? Because if God were not angry at sin and evil, he would have no compulsion to do anything about it. But because he is, Because his anger rages at the wrong in this world, now he can do something about it. Because of his anger, there is hope. Because of his anger, there is deliverance. Because of God's anger, there's Elijah. There's a deliverer who has come to set his people free. 
Second, I think here, Elijah understands that true authority rests not with Ahab, but with God. He says, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand. And he's saying this, standing in front of the most powerful man in the land. Do you see what's happening here? It's as though Elijah walks in and says, listen, Ahab, I've got some bad news. <laughs> and I know what you're going to try to do to me the minute that I say it, right? I mean, this is Elijah's death sentence. You walk in to a guy like Ahab's room and you say these kinds of words, you're wearing concrete shoes and swimming with the fishes by lunch, right? I mean, this does not end well for Elijah. And yet he understands that his acceptance or his rejection, that his, his very safety rests not in the hands of the king named Ahab, but in the hands of a king named Yahweh. He stands before God. He knows that true authority rests not in any human institution, but with God himself. And third here, I think Elijah understands that true power comes not from Baal, but from God. Elijah lays down the gauntlet here, right? He, I mean, he says, go ahead. You, you keep worshiping your little rain god. That's fine. Do what you need to do. But I worship the God who can stop the rain, and I'm going to prove it to you. I mean, th this is like mic drop moment, right? Because Elijah knows that our idols can't possibly produce the things that they have promised because they have no power. The only one who can deliver on these promises is God himself, and he's about to show them. See, this story might look on the surface like it's a battle between Elijah and Ahab, but it is not. This is a battle between God and Baal. These two great deities, or at least in our case, it's a battle between God and all of the paltry idols we tend to roll out instead of him. But only one God sends the rain. Only one God can deliver the promises of life and fulfillment and flourishing. See, Elijah acted on his firm convictions, his conviction that God's anger burns against the evil that wreaks havoc in God's world. That God is the ultimate authority before whom we stand and to whom we must give an account. That God's power is far greater than any other in this world. And on that firm foundation, Elijah takes a stand. Which brings us to the second challenge that I think this text has for us. In the face of sin and evil, God's people stand up and we stand out. This is who we are. I mean, this is what we're called to do. That the people of God were always called to be a light to the nations. We were called to stand out, a counterculture, a new creation. And as long as we continue to hear and respond to God's word, we can't help but stand up and stand out. It's the natural result. But see, that's the striking contrast here between Elijah and Ahab. It's not just what they did, it's who they listened to. Ahab consistently rejected the word of God and did whatever he wanted, and Elijah consistently tuned his heart and his ear to what God had to say, and he followed through in faithful obedience. 
See, the moment that we stop listening to God's voice and we start listening to the voices of others, that's the moment when idolatry gets its grip on us. In the words of Romans chapter 1, when we give our heart to an idol, we exchange the truth of God for a lie. We start accommodating to the cultural world in which we live. But God's people are called to be different. We're called to stand up and to stand out based on the firm confidence of who he says he is and what he says he will do. In the face of rampant evil, God's people stand up and we stand out. Which brings us to the last movement in this story. Only this time, the central character is not Ahab or Elijah. It's God himself. Look at 1 Kings 17, verse 2. And the word of the Lord came to him, that's Elijah, depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself in the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. Now, if I'm Elijah, <laughs> I'm like, really? <laughs> I mean, this, this is it? This is the plan? You want me to go out into the desert to drink from a stream in the middle of a drought, and you're going to send disgusting, disease-ridden carrion birds to bring me meat. Uh, no thanks, God. I'll take my chances with Ahab, right? I mean, this is not really a great plan here. And yet, maybe the most amazing thing in the story is that even here, Elijah obeys. He hears and responds to the word of God. And God fulfills his promise. He consistently provides what Elijah needs to live. Now, on the one hand, God's action here is extraordinarily ordinary, isn't it? I mean, this isn't very flashy, right? I mean, God could have made food appear out of nowhere. He could have done something really spectacular here, but instead he chose to use a stream and birds, just common, everyday things. And it's not like he did this for everyone to see, right? I mean, this is in the backwater country. No, no one sees what's happening here. There's no fanfare, no PR campaign. I mean, even Ahab has no idea that this is happening. For all intents and purposes, Ahab probably thinks he's winning at this moment. And how often does God work like this, right? As an outside observer, we look at what he's up to and we think, come on, isn't there more that you could be doing? Couldn't you do something dramatic in this moment? Couldn't he act swiftly and decisively? Couldn't he, couldn't he show the full breadth and depth of his power? Why isn't God doing more? And yet, on the other hand, there's something incredible going on in this moment that the ancient readers would have picked up on instantly. Does any of this sound vaguely familiar? Do you remember another moment in biblical history when God's people found themselves in the desert provided for miraculously with bread and water by the very hand of God? Does that sound familiar? Ah, yes. Moses and the people, right? After God had set them free from their captivity in Egypt, he led them out into the wilderness and he provided for them. And while some of the details have changed here with Elijah, God is doing the very same thing 
all over again. It's almost as though he's saying, okay, Ab, you, you want to take us back to the time before I brought the walls down to Jericho? You want to recanonize the land? That's okay. Because I'm going to bring a new deliverer. I'm going to raise up a new Moses who will set my people free once again. See, even when it appears as though God is absent, even when we wonder what in the world he's up to, even when it looks as though evil has won and we're just wandering in the wilderness, this story helps pull back the curtain and remind us what's really happening here. And this is the last takeaway from our story. Not only are we shown that evil runs rampant in God's world, and not only are we reminded that as God's people we stand up and stand out, but here in this moment, in the midst of it all, we're reminded that no matter what, God is still with us. He hasn't gone anywhere. And here lies the real hope of the story. I mean, don't be mistaken. Elijah is not the hero of the story. I mean, yes, he serves as God's messenger, but he is not the message. Yes, he heard and obeyed the word of God, but not perfectly, not without fail. He was still human like us. And ultimately, as great as Elijah was, even he would not be able to give the people what they ultimately needed. No, our hope is not in Elijah. And our hope in this story is also not that we can become like Elijah. I mean, certainly he's an admirable role model, but we would do well to be a little bit more like him. But that's not the point of the story. If there's anyone in this story that we're supposed to identify with, it's not Elijah, it's Ahab. Now, we are not the hero of the story. We are the ones who need a hero. We need an Elijah who will hear and speak and obey God's word. We need an Elijah who will wage war against all of the sin and evil and despair in this world. We need an Elijah who will show us beyond the shadow of a doubt that no matter what happens, God is still with us. And thankfully, this story doesn't end with Elijah. Rather, he points us forward to the one who is our hope. Some 800 years later, another deliverer would come, one who was not just hearing and responding to God's word. He was God's word. He too was led into the wilderness without food and water, sustained by the very word of God. He too stood up against the power brokers of this world and stood out for his radical obedience to God. He too would wage war against all the forces of evil in this world, not just at the risk of his own life, but at the cost of his own life. Is it any wonder that the Gospels so frequently confuse Jesus with the second coming of Elijah? People say it all over the place in the stories of the Gospels. Only he's not Elijah. He was Emmanuel, which is a Hebrew name that means God with us. Do you see? Elijah was a pretty big deal, no doubt. But we have someone so much better than Elijah. We have Jesus, the very son of the most high God. And while Baal can't even make it rain, Jesus poured out his own blood to rescue us from our evil and save us from our slavery.
Baal can't give us the life that we long for, but Jesus defeated death once and for all and sets us free. See, if you've ever looked at the evil in the world around you, or maybe even if you've had the courage to look at the evil in your own heart, and you've wondered where in the world is God in all of this, what is he up to? Why can't he be doing more? Now look no further than Jesus, the one who stood in our place, the one who paid the ultimate price, and the one who reminds us beyond the shadow of a doubt that God is with us, that he is always with us. Would you pray with me? Father, we confess that we are Ahab. So quick to turn to other gods in the hopes that they'll provide us the deliverance and and the promise that we so desperately long for. And we confess, Lord God, that the evil that has destroyed your world isn't just something out there, it's something that runs through the very center of every human heart. And so God, help us. Help us to see the ways that we have turned from you. Help us to hear and respond to your word and remind us of your presence with us in your son, Jesus, our great Emmanuel, who died and rose again to defeat sin and evil once and for all. Thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.